Church, we come before a God who invites his people, those who are his, to bring their needs to him. So at this time, we want to give ourselves to a prayer of petition, asking for God's help in our church, asking for him to work among us. If you would, bow your heads with me and and pray with me as we go before God in prayer. Almighty God, we come before you as your gathered people, asking for your favor among us. Father, this morning, as many in our country remember the sanctity of human life, we pray for your work in our land to preserve life, both the unborn and those whose lives are not valued who are born. Father, we pray against the evil of abortion in our land. We pray that you would thwart the plans of the evil one to kill human life even before it's born. We pray that you would change the hearts of many in our country who, in their confusion, call abortion a good thing. Father, we pray that you would lead us to be especially Christ-like with our neighbors and the surrounding culture in the ways that we speak out against evil. We pray for any among us who have committed abortion, that you would be near to them as they grieve and repent. Father, we pray also for our church today. We pray for members in our church, oh God. We pray for Donna Dawkins as she broke her hand and is in pain this week. Father, we pray for her healing. We pray that you would give her a successful surgery this week on the 23rd. Father, we pray for members among us who are college students as they head back to another semester. Father, we pray for Kurt Baker as he studies in Orlando and for Caden Duford as he studies at PBA. Father, may they have uncommon opportunities to witness to their peers about the surpassing goodness of Jesus Christ. Uh, We we pray for members who are working on college campuses. We think of uh, people like uh, Stephen Worley and Kat Rummel. Father, we think of Bob Lutz and Chastity Jingri. We think of David Yurzar. We pray that as these believers interact with college students who are in such a pivotal time in their lives, Father, that you would give our members wonderful relationships. We pray that you would let them invest well in others. Father, whether our church grows or other churches grow, we pray that more college students would take seriously their commitment to local churches. Father, we pray not just for us today. We pray for other places in the world. And we think of other countries. Even today as we read this passage about Jerusalem, we're reminded of the modern nation state of Israel. We're reminded of the profound suffering that has been taking place in Israel and Palestine. Father, we ask for peace in that region. We ask, as 1 Timothy tells us, for wisdom for the leaders and all who are in authority to lead in such a way that Palestine and Israel could lead quiet lives and honor you. Father, we pray especially for local churches and Christians in Israel and Palestine who we are closest to because of the gospel. 
Sustain our brothers and sisters in Christ, we pray. Father, we turn our attention now to your word. And we recognize that we are tempted to see with the eyes of man. And so we pray that you would give us eyes to see as you see and ears to hear what you say. Father, as this text is once again a, a difficult text for us to process, oh Lord, we pray that your spirit would be present in this room. We pray that your spirit would illumine the word to us. We pray that we would even be encouraged by the bad news that we read about here. We pray that you'd be, build us up, O oh God. We pray that you'd work in us, O oh God. We pray all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, desperation and hope gripped the passengers aboard the MS St. Louis. The voyage took two weeks to reach Havana. The year was 1939, and the large ship was running from Europe. Most of the ship's 937 passengers were Jews, who in desperation were seeking to escape the growing influence of Nazi Germany and the increasing persecution being inflicted upon the Jews. But this voyage would go down in history with a grim title. It would be termed the Voyage of the Damned. This voyage, you see, has, having crossed the ocean, brought its passengers to North America and found out that they would not qualify for admission to Havana. But the news got worse. The ve vessel sought then to find entrance in the United States, followed then by Canada, only to repeatedly find out that they were rejected. The ship had no choice but to return to Europe, where, history tells us, subsequently, the majority of the ship's passengers were eventually killed or imprisoned in this ensuing Holocaust. I wonder, what must it have felt like to be a passenger on that ship, sitting offshore of North America, and to receive the news of your rejection? Imagine knowing that the, the Nazi persecution lay behind you, and sitting there within reach of safety, only to then be denied. One of the few survivors remembers drifting here, uh, two miles off the coast of Florida, and, and peering into the land that they were missing. She writes, Miami looked so very tempting, lovely, glamorous. Now what's particularly dreadful about this story from history is the unexpected rejection when acceptance was what was needed most. Friends, today's passage picks up on this very theme. Difficult as it may be, Jesus today speaks directly about the risk of future unexpected rejection. If you haven't already, open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 13. 
be in verses 22 through 35 as we continue to just work our way passage by passage through the book of Luke. As Caden just read for us, we listened to two sections of Jesus' teaching, both dealing, if you noticed, with different types of rejection. You saw Herod's rejection of Christ. We saw Jerusalem's coming rejection of Jesus. And perhaps most painfully, we see the rejection into hell that some will experience after this short life is over. So as we study this passage this morning, we find a warning from Christ. And so this morning, I want us to consider the question, how does Christ warn his listeners, especially in the risk of coming rejection? the risk of that rejection. Today, I'm going to focus my comments just on three answers specifically. There's more that could be found here. We're going to see that Jesus warns with urgency, with brokenness, and with hope. My prayer is that you will not be caught by an unexpected rejection in your future. Listen carefully to how God's word warns us today. Our passage there in chapter 13 picks up with Jesus on the road to Jerusalem, there in verse uh, 32. Sorry, 22, rather. If you're taking notes, you can just jot the cross-reference there in the margin that, uh, of Luke 9, 51. That's where these journey narratives began, and Luke tells us that Jesus was on his way tra- traveling to Jerusalem. Uh, perhaps challenged by some of Jesus' recent warnings that we've been studying, someone is there in the crowd, and they, they call out to Jesus, and they ask Jesus a question. Will those who are saved be few? Notice, even in the question, there's an admission that we must be saved. Jesus doesn't directly answer the question, though. Uh, instead, he, he pivots Instead of asking how many will be saved, we're to ask, will I be saved? Uh, So we come to our first point today. Number one, Jesus warns with urgency. Look at verse 24. And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. This call to strive is a word signifying intense exertion. It's the word that we get our word agonize from in English. It's that that moment in the race where all of the muscles of the Olympian are focused on one goal as they give everything they have just to cross that finish line. As we'll see towards the end of the sermon, This is not saying that we earn our salvation by our works. That's not what's being taught here. No, our salvation and our sanctification come by faith alone, in Christ's work alone. But Jesus sees no contradiction in saying that the one who is saved by him will be one who is striving to cross the finish line. So we can see this other place in the scripture, by the way. We see that one who is fighting the good fight of faith in 1 Timothy 6.12, or one who is seeking out, working out their salvation with fear and trembling in the book of Philippians. You see, there is a narrow door ahead of us that we must make it through. This illustration of a narrow door, if you can just picture that in your mind's eye. 
uh, when speaking to just a large crowd, like a crowd here, imagine us all trying to make it through one narrow door. The point is that fewer people will be able to enter than are expected. As one commentator puts it, there is no automatic entry. And so hearing and following the words of Christ is a matter of utmost urgency. Notice, though, how this urgency is then increased by the risk of self-deception. Again, if you're taking notes, that's just a great word to go ahead and put in the margin uh, next to this paragraph. Self-deception. Look at verse 25. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I don't know where you came from, come from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Now, the picture here is graphic, tragic, and just horrifying to even consider. Jesus has us imagine a, a great house where perhaps the Lord of the house is uh, maybe throwing a banquet inside. It's an image that Jesus is going to return to four times over the next two chapters. We'll see it several times ahead. And obviously, we would want to be inside that house. We'd want to be in the banquet, uh, the place where the banquet is, with, with the master, the Lord of the house. Uh, but in his picture, not only is the door that we must go through a narrow one, but did you notice it is a door that is closing. The opportunity to come into this banquet is ending. Friends, this is the moment we live in. Uh, this, we are now in the short time between the times where uh, this short life that we are all living makes all the difference for eternity future. The tragic nature of the scene is highlighted because some people outside of, of this great feast will be there and they will be surprised because they thought that they would be able to get in. You've been to weddings before, you can imagine traveling to one, perhaps far off, only to arrive find out that it was not only by invitation only, but that your name isn't on the guest list. You can imagine the surprise you might feel, along with the sense of disappointment to be left out as the person there at the door just searches through, kind of looking for your name to see if you could come in, and you're slowly realizing you're not going to get in. Or, or you could imagine the plight of those on the ship that I started with in the, in the open introduction to my sermon, what it must have felt like. Well, here, the people are at heaven's gate. And they had heard Jesus' teaching. They had uh, come to church plenty of times. They had been to equipping classes. They had maybe even served in Awana. Everyone in their local churches knew their names. And in Jesus' words, they, they ate and drank in his presence, so they were in close proximity to Jesus. But to these self-deceived people, Jesus will say, I don't know where you come from. Friends, here's the point. Proximity 
and familiarity do not equal relationship. Proximity and familiarity do not equal relationship. The passage is teaching that some, maybe even some of us in this room today, will feel that we are close to Jesus Christ, and we will yet end up on the wrong side of heaven's door. Could that be you? Some people will think that they knew what he was saying and teaching, and yet still find that one day they are shut out. Could that be you? How horrific to imagine this moment. Now, I, I will give clarity in just a moment for all of us, wondering how we can assess whether this is us or not. I think there's echoes of it here, even in the text. But before I relieve and assuage our, our consciences right now, I want us to feel the full urgency of the warning of Christ. Because before it gets better, it actually gets worse. Not only will some think they're in, but find that they're actually out, think that they're first and find that they're actually last, but some will be rejected into heaven to find that eternal torment is the only alternative. Let me just pause here just before speaking on the nature of hell. If you're here today and you're a visitor, uh, perhaps you just balk at the, the concept of hell. Perhaps you, you struggle to see that it could be right that a loving God who's almighty and good could possibly be eternally angry at sin. Well, I would just say, if, if that's you today, uh, you're probably a normal human being. Sadly, all of us as fallen human beings do not estimate our sin rightly. The significance of, of what we have done against God, we don't rightly weigh that. It, it's like we have a scale that's just miscalibrated. Yeah, we, we know evil is wrong and it deserves punishment. We, we see that in our lives. But our scale is, is weighing in ounces and it should be weighing in metric tons. We, we see sin, and we see our own sin, and we assume that, that God should just be able to ignore some of that. This is normal. If there is in you this sense, let me encourage you that as you listen to these next few verses, notice that they don't come from the mouth of a messenger. They don't come from the mouth of one of Jesus' disciples, or from an apostle, or a prophet. No, they come from the Son of God himself. He's explaining to us the measure of his offense against our sin, where our scale should be calibrated. Look at verse 27 and 28. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. So mere familiarity with Christ 
devoid of knowledge of him, devoid of, uh, of repentance, devoid of true faith, mere familiarity with Christ still demands punishment. The torment of hell here is described as a place. You'll notice that in the text. We see four descriptors of the suffering that, that Scripture tells us, that Jesus tells us. Number one, notice he says there will be weeping. So hell will be a place of bitter grief and sorrow. Number two, we see gnashing of teeth. This is an expression of being severely disturbed. Hell will be a place of restless sorrow. Number three, did you notice uh, there's this exclusion? So Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets will be in heaven, but those apart from Christ will be cast out. Our Lord teaches here that there seems to be a special type of torment of hell caused by the realization of not getting to be with Christ. When we see that clearly. But number four, and this, this is perhaps worthy of our greatest attention. It's incredibly instructive to us. I think there's, a, there's an ability to think too long on hell that we are not meant to. But there's a, there's a rightfulness to think about it. Number four, notice that hell is fundamentally separation from Christ. Did you see that in verse 27? Jesus will say, depart from me. This will be the source of all torment. This will be the ultimate culmination of all pain. This will be the most present reality of all suffering, that those in hell will be told to depart from Christ and will be separated from him for eternity. This is because the person of Jesus Christ is himself the source and everlasting fountain of all true joy. This is who Jesus is. Jesus is the source. He's the fountain of all true life. He is the source of all true peace and beauty and all true contentment in your life. All happiness that's real happiness. All perfection. All perfect love. All perfect goodness. It's Jesus Christ. He's the center and, and source of that. He's, he's the place where it finds its, its beginning and end. It's all in Jesus. It's all coming from him. Any, any taste that you have of that in this world is a, an opportunity of God's common grace in your life given to us in this world through the person of Jesus Christ. He's the source of it all. Jesus is the pinnacle, the apex the, the sun from which the sunbeams come of all joy and happiness, all goodness, all pleasure. It's in Jesus. It's there. And so being apart from Christ is not a byproduct of hell. It's the essence of hell. This is why there's such urgency in Jesus' invitation. Because to not come into the banquet is to not come to him. And to be cast away from the banquet is to be cast away from him. To be sent away without any shred of goodness, 
So Jesus says, strive. Give every effort to be sure that you get Christ. The door will be shut. Some who think they are first in line will be last. As many in today's world, and even visitors here today, listen to this. They think on the hard-to-fathom possibility of hell. It is impossible to fathom them, I think, without understanding Christ. If you don't understand the goodness of Christ, then of course you won't understand the suffering of being apart from Christ. But, but some would question us, how are Christians okay with this? Well, on the one hand, we, will, we can rightly say that in heaven one day we will have all true and right understanding of God's holiness and the response of justice that it demands on our sin. But here on earth, I think one right response to that is that we are not okay with this. And I take that because this is the response of our Savior himself. Point number two this morning. How does Jesus warn, number two, Jesus warns with brokenness. You see, when our Savior sees the rejection of those that he created, righteous anger is perfectly accompanied by righteous compassion. These are not at odds with one another. Look down at the next section uh, of today's passage. Uh, there, starting in verse 31 in your Bibles, you, you'll notice the religious leaders come to Jesus and say, get away from here, that is Jerusalem, for Herod wants to kill you. They're, they're warning Jesus, they're sending him away. Jesus, verse 32, you'll notice he responds boldly, calling Herod out and insisting that it's going to continue on his course. He'll, he predicts his death. But then look at verse 33. He says, nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. So Jesus explains that just as countless other prophets had been martyred in Jerusalem, well, so also must Jesus as the ultimate prophet, the greatest prophet. So also must he die in Jerusalem. Now, pause Realize what's happening here. Jesus is prophesying, he's predicting, admitting what's about to happen to him. That his own people, the, the Israelites, who thousands of years ago he called to be his own, these people would be the ones that would reject him. These people would be the ones that would kill him, perish, the text says. And so, admitting this rejection that just lays ahead of him in Jerusalem, how will Jesus respond? Will he cherish their judgment? Will he happily forsake them? Will the Lord take pleasure in the death of the wicked? No. Listen to verse 34. Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen 
gathers her brood under her wings. And you are not willing. Friends, do you hear where his grief is? Over the fact that they're about to kill him? Over the fact that the people that he called out to be his people are now rejecting him? Here in Luke, Jesus laments that Israel will be forsaken. He laments that Israel will be forsaken, not that he will be forsaken. This is the same God who spoke through the prophet in Ezekiel 33. As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? You see, in the same breath that he acknowledges their rejection of him, he grieves that they did not allow him to welcome them in. Their deliverer has come for them, and they rejected him. So he gives them an illustration. He says, think of a, a hen in your barnyard. Uh, notice how the hen just gathers her chicks together under her wings. Notice how it's, it's her very instinct to do that, to offer a place of, of security and care and to welcome, to, to pull them in to a place of protection. Jesus says, that's my instinct. Jesus says, oh, how I would have cared for you. But no. Can you hear the lament which Jesus cries out on Israel's behalf? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he grieves their rejection. The Bidi Anyabwile remarks powerfully on this brokenness. He says, Jesus knows that death awaits him in Jerusalem. Yet the Lord weeps not for himself, but for Jerusalem, the forsaken house. It breaks the Savior's heart that his people refuse to be saved. He'll weep again in chapter 19 when he reaches the city. He wept over such hardness of heart that would refuse the free offer of an eternal kingdom. Oh, beloved Christians here today, do you care more that you are rejected for sharing the gospel or that that person has rejected the gospel? Do you care more that someone might think poorly of you for a mere 50 to 60 years, depending how many more years you have left? Or do you care that that person will one day, if they're apart from Christ, be forsaken? Does your life reflect this same urgency and compassion that we see in our Savior? First, Baptist, this, this text ought to just shape and just totally rework our view of evangelism. We ought to have a holy urgency in the way that we talk with our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and family that don't know about Christ yet. We ought to be far more concerned about the fate of their eternal rejection than about the mild cost of our earthly rejection. So church, 
Pray that God would give you opportunities to share the gospel. Church, pray that God would give you boldness and winsomeness to talk more frequently with others about Christ. Church, let your heart be broken over the lost like our Savior's was. Consider who, who you can invite to church. You just do that right now. You can just take three seconds. If you were going to invite somebody to church in the next two months who doesn't yet know the Lord, who would you invite? Okay, think for yourself. Pray. Pray that you could act like you believe that what Jesus says here is true. I, I'm convinced that one of the greatest hurdles to our evangelism is unbelief. We don't actually believe everything I've been reading this morning. We don't actually break in, in brokenness and compassion like our Savior. We could, First Boynton, again, I'm still talking to our members here, we could set up uh, programs as a church to better do outreach and evangelism, and maybe we will do that one day. But just imagine how much more powerful it would be if we, the people of our church, actually believed what Jesus says. Imagine if we connected this reality to a sense of urgency and compassion together. Imagine if even just 10% of this room did that. If they chose to act on this warning of hell that we see, combined with this, this picture of a compassionate Savior that we see modeled, and we went out and talked about our Lord. Jesus warns with perfect urgency and perfect brokenness. We should move towards a close. Uh, attention has been introduced in this text. Thankfully, the, the passage offers strong pointers to its coming resolution. Consider with me number three. Jesus warns with hope. He warns with hope. Specifically, hope of a solution and hope of a future. We'll look at both. First, Jesus warns with hope of a solution. We went quickly by it in verse 32, but after the Pharisees sought to dissuade Jesus from going to Jerusalem, listen again to what he says. He said, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform miracles today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I finish my course. Verse 33, nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. You see, Jesus will not be dissuaded. This is now, by the way, the fourth prophecy that he has given of his death in the book of Luke. He was a man who knew his mission. He was a man who could not be distracted from what he came to accomplish. Since the foundation of the world and the covenant of redemption that he made with the Father in eternity past, he was compelled with a divine imperative that he must go on his way. What must he go to do? Notice he said that on the third day he must finish his course. This language just rings of a, of a race to be run to its completion. 
This word finish here, it means Jesus is working to something. It's the word telos. It's a word that speaks of the culmination of something. What was it? What, what, what was this culmination that he was looking to? Why would Jesus need to finish his course in Jerusalem? Oh, friends, not long later, in that city, he would speak again of a telos, of a finishing, and he would use that same word. The finishing, the completing, the telos of his life would come to a dramatic climax as he would be the one to be forsaken. He hanged on a tree. And there he would cry out, It is finished. It is finished. What he was saying was all of God's righteous anger and wrath against all sin from the beginning of time was being placed on him in its fullness. What he was saying was all of the sin for all of those sinners who have miscalibrated scales, who think that this is a small thing to rebel against the living God, who don't understand it, that he would still take the payment of their sin. And he would take it, not mostly, not partially, but fully. He would finish his task, and he would be able to say, it is finished. Oh, beloved, that is good news for us. That is good news for us. Here is the hope that Christ offers. The, the weeping, the, the, the bitter agony, the, the, the gnashing of teeth, the exclusion of being cast out, of being separated from the Father. Oh, it came in its culmination and force to Jesus Christ who finished his course for us and said it is finished. Praise God. Amen? Friends, look to Christ. Look to Christ today who endured hell so that you don't have to. Look to him. If you're here today and this is new for you, if you're here today and you're considering Christianity, if you're here today and you're, you're still not sure whether you're in or you're out, this is, this is what you need to do. You, you just you look to Christ. You say, it's, it's nothing that I bring to get myself right with God. It's all in what Jesus Christ has done and finished for me. He has borne the wrath of God for you. And he has designed that he will offer it to you freely, free of cost, if you will just look to him in faith. Look to Christ. Look to him and your striving to enter that narrow door will be the right response of true faith. This is, why, this is why Martin Luther could write his famous hymn, Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Do you ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is he. You see, the striving of our faith in verse 22 is a, a striving of a faith that looks to Christ as the finisher, the one who finished. Hebrews 12 says, Let us lay aside every weight and every sin which 
cling so closely and let us run with endurance, strive with endurance, the race that is set before us. How? How do we do that? By looking to Jesus, the founder and finisher, same word, of our faith, who for the joy was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, Jesus Christ finished the work on the cross. Believe in his death and resurrection. And then you will find hope, a second hope, a hope of a future. Here is the second part of Christ's warning. It is that he warns with a a glorious hope of a glorious future. You see, Jesus is the only one who can offer an eternity that is an alternative to hell. Look back at verse 29 in the text. Jesus says, and all, and people will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. Friends, this is us. No longer is being in the national people of God uh, what Jesus looks to. Even, Even then it was by faith. No longer is being in the people of God restricted only to Israel. No. You and I, Gentiles, from east and west and and north and south, we are invited to come into his presence. And Jesus here is, is looking forward to eternity future and says that we get to recline at the table in the kingdom of God. The picture is of perfect joy and perfect rest and and perfect communion with God. It's it's honestly the perfect opposite of everything that hell is. That's one of the reasons we need hell. to, to, To understand it by contrast. Here, it's reclining at table with him. Church, this is part of what we're about to celebrate. In a minute, I'm I'm going to close, I'm going to pray, we'll sing, and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. And you know that one of the reasons we celebrate the Lord's Supper is that we look back to the death of Jesus Christ, and we remember. But Christ makes it clear that this institution that he gives to the church is not just to look back at Christ's death, but to look forward to his coming return with joy. Speaking of the Lord's Supper, Jesus says in Luke 22, For I tell you, from now on I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus is saying, look forward to a time when you will have this banquet, but so much greater. This this banquet that you have today, oh, it's just the smallest little preview, this, this tiny little reminder in your life that for those who are in Christ, there is a banquet. Revelation 19, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Oh, beloved, heed Christ's warning today. Behold our God. Look to Jesus Christ, the finisher. Hear his warning and hope in him. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you that it speaks clearly and with honesty about the future that you have planned. Father, I plead on behalf of this room that none here would hear these dreadful words in their future. That those who are here who have now heard the gospel would place their faith in Christ. That they would strive with the strength that Christ provides. They would behold our God in worship and follow him. Oh God, work in our midst. Call us to yourself. Give us obedience in our evangelism and our outreach. May we be clear with others. Oh God, may we worship you. We pray this in the name of Jesus.